have two readings this morning. The first one is Psalm 110, and the second one is Mark 12, verses 35 to 44. So first reading, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Turning to Mark 12. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How this, how then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquet. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins with worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is God's word. Morning. Uh, great to see you all here. If you haven't met before, um, my name is Simon. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would open our eyes wider. You'd open our eyes wider to see quite how amazing you are. And we pray this for your glory, not for our own. Amen. A question I've been um, wondering of myself recently is, um, why as a Christian do I find it so tempting to want praise for myself for church? Why are my um, motives always so mixed? What's with that? Of course, sometimes we know what it feels like as a Christian to do the right thing for the right reasons. Um, you know, we, we might come early to set up for coffee, say, or to come and um, practice with a band or do bookstall. And we know what it feels like to um, come and do it joyfully and um, just know Jesus saw it and that was enough. I'm just happy to do it. And we know sometimes, um, perhaps midweek, we might be behind the scenes and there's that person who's just going through a really tough couple of weeks, a tough time at the moment, and um, we're just trying to help them, do what we can to love them and care for them, give ourselves to them, give our time. And um, we want to do that because God loves them, and that's okay for us. You know, sometimes we just do the right things for the right reasons. But what is it with when I have that moment when perhaps someone else at church mentions how well someone else has cared for that same individual Part of me inside wants to say, sorry, did you not see what I was doing on Wednesday and Thursday evening? Or um, 
uh, perhaps uh, a coffee, uh, I don't know, uh, someone mentions uh, how well that person's come along and um, served so generously and just uh, quietly, sacrificially got on with it this morning. And part of us wants to mention, well, the last three weeks in a row, I have been coming and covering people while they've been on summer holidays. But um, the part of us kind of wants to say that. But of course, if we're British, we don't say anything at all. Um, perhaps we just uh, feel it inside. But how do I get back to doing the right thing for the right reason? I want to do that. How do I get back to that? So I want to serve God because I love him. I want to serve people because um, I know God loves them and they're, 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 worth, they're worth something. I want to do that. What's that way to serve Jesus wholeheartedly from the heart? Well, this morning Jesus is going to show us just that way. He's going to do it by showing us a bigger and broader vision of who he is that our eyes will be opened wider to see quite how amazing the Lord Jesus is, what it means to call him the Messiah. And then that then means we'll have a, a deeper love for him, a more wholeheartedly self-giving, joyful love for him that's willing to go and be spent for him in our lives um, because we know afresh who he is. And that's what makes all the difference. Because sometimes the reason I, we, will want praise for ourselves around church is because at times our view of Jesus just becomes too small. And so our religion can just become quite shallow. And that's the danger we need to be warned against today. And actually for the uh, temple uh, religious types in the passage we're looking at today, that's the issue for them. Their view of the Messiah is too small, and so the religion is too shallow. So Jesus has just taught that the most important command is to wholeheartedly love God and your neighbor. Um, so if you look at me, please, at verse 29, which if you are here last week, we looked at, Jesus says, what's most important? The most important command is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. It's a wholehearted devotion to God and to people. That's what's most important. And Jesus today gives us two examples in practice of what that looks like. Um, one negative example of people getting it wrong, um, which is the teachers of the law who are hypocritically seeking honor for themselves. And secondly, positively, this poor widow who models exactly what godliness looks like she wholeheartedly gives herself. But firstly, we need to ask this question which Jesus asks us of what title is appropriate for him. And if you're a note taker, that's our first point. And that's verses 35 to 37. So if you open your Bibles, please, at 1018 and verse 35. So while Jesus was teaching in the temple court, he asks, why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. So the title you give someone matters. Titles matter. I saw an example in the paper um, uh, recently of uh, after last year's Grammy Awards in the LA, uh, there was a rapper who hosted an after-show party after the um, Grammy Awards in one of um, Hollywood's trendiest nightclubs. And kind of to create the, um, the elitist, exclusive, cool vibe at the party he wanted, um, it was very um, clear to the bouncers on the door, it's VIPs only tonight, VIPs only. 
And so and when the bouncer at the door saw um, an elderly gentleman in his 70s walking slowly towards the club door, and he steps acro- across him and says, uh, sorry, sir, VIPs only. He said it politely but firmly. Sorry, sir, VIPs only. And this elderly gentleman just blinks at him and then tries to walk past him again. And so he puts his arm across and says, sorry, sir, VIPs only. So the bouncer said it twice, said no. He didn't realize that this um, well-dressed elderly gentleman was, in fact, Sir Paul McCartney of Beatles fame. He is the original Beatle, um, the best-selling band in history, in fact. Uh, he is the biggest star of pop history. And apparently, as Paul McCartney walked away, he um, said out loud to the paparazzi, how VIP do you got to get? <laughs> you see, titles matter. So the bouncer, actually, he, you see, he called him Sir. Sorry, sir, you can't come in. But he didn't twig. This is Sir Paul McCartney. <laughs> this is Sir Paul McCartney. So titles matter. And this morning, what title should I give Jesus? So Jesus notices there's a problem with the teachers of the law. So verse 35, he asks, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Okay, there's a problem with just calling him son of David. Because in their minds, the son of David was a a title that meant um, someone was going to come and be a king who would um, free them from the uh, Romans' rule, uh, give them an Israelite king. So this um, son of David is a title that kind of encapsulates that hope of here and now uh, freedom uh, from the Romans. So when they say son of David, what they mean is this Messiah, he's going to be just like David was. And that's going to be great. But Jesus says, actually, this title alone isn't fitting. So verse 36, he says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be a son? Okay, so this title alone isn't quite fitting. It's not quite appropriate. There's more going on. So in Psalm 110, it was written by King David. King David, think um, the best king they've had, the most uh, wonderful historic king they've had, who's ruled them at the absolute high point of their nation. And if David, King David, someone as high as him, calls this person my Lord, as Jesus says in verse 37, you know, what father calls their son my Lord? Um, unless it's steeped in sarcasm. His lordship would like his nappy changed type of thing. No, no, who does that? You don't say it with seriousness. He's saying, this Messiah is great David's greater son. And Psalm 110 shows just how much greater this Messiah that's going to come will be than David. So here in the bit Jesus quotes, he says, he will sit at my right hand, sit at the Lord's right hand. That's a place of highest and most deserving possible honor. His enemies are a footstool under your feet. This is a picture of final and decisive victory over his enemies. Later on in the psalm, he says, he will judge nations. Not just making the judgments of a human king in a city, but judging all nations eternally. A global judge. Psalm 110 says, he will crush kings. So this is a might and a power that goes even beyond the Roman emperor of the day, beyond the biggest superpower around. He will crush kings. He will judge them and rule them. 
So what title is appropriate for a Messiah like that? Another David? Another son of David? No, this is great David's greatest son. This is the eternally reigning Messiah. This is the priest forever, the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This is the son of God. And so Jesus has just taught that the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And Jesus says very clearly, I'm worthy of that same love. So for us, the call is to see afresh quite how mighty and majestic Jesus is. Um, an American called Colin Hansen, who's the editor of the Gospel Coalition in the States, he commented on evangelical church culture. He said that the danger is that, quote, Jesus is treated like a mix of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist who doesn't get too involved in my personal life. So actually here today, regardless of if we call ourselves a Christian or not, do you see Jesus can, can't possibly be just an accessory to my life? Nor is he just a, a political radical or a fighter of injustice. No, he's saying this is great David's greater son. This is the mighty Messiah. This is the son of God. This is the king of kings. This is someone who came to save us by dying on the cross. Saving us not just from an unsatisfying life, but save us from eternal punishment. This is what it means to call him the Messiah. So sometimes we can use the right lingo about Jesus, a bit like the teacher of the law did, perhaps like the, the bouncer on that nightclub door did about Sir Paul McCartney. We can use the right lingo, but actually we no, no longer kind of fully mean it in our hearts. We can, we can become just a bit desensitized to how amazing Christ is. It's a bit like staring at a sunset for too long um, or eating amazing food too long all the time. We just become a bit desensitized to it. So we can find ourselves um, singing words and hymns about how amazing Jesus is, but in our hearts feeling actually a million miles away from that. And we all get like this. We can be up and down as Christians. So what we need is a large glass of Psalm 110. We need to drink it in and soak ourselves in how mighty and majestic our Messiah is. To remember about Jesus that one day every ruler of the world will bow down to his name. One day, every single tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Pick any historical figure in your mind. Pick any of them. One day, that person will bow down before Jesus. Every single enemy of Jesus' church, people who are currently imprisoning Christians, beating them, stoning them, killing them, they will be held to account and one day be just footstools for his feet. Jesus is a priest forever, Psalm 110 says. So if you're a Christian here today, right now, at this moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is at the Father's right hand, and he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's saying to God, and don't look at their sins. I've paid for it. He's a priest forever. And one day when Jesus returns, we'll go to be with him, and actually we'll look at him and see him face to face. And we'll sing praises to him forever. The Messiah. What title is appropriate? Another David? No, greater than David. David's Lord. The Messiah. So in verse 37, Jesus kind of enigmatically 
tantalizingly, just leaves this question hanging. What title is appropriate for Jesus? He leaves it hanging. He's asking quite how great is he? And because the title we give Jesus, how wonderful we think he is, actually that will flow out into our lives, into what we think godliness looks like. So Jesus moves on to ask, actually, what life is appropriate? With a Messiah like this, what life is appropriate? What religion is appropriate? And he answers with two examples. So 38 to 40 is a negative example. This is the teachers of the law um, who hypocritically seek honor for themselves. And the positive example is this seeming nobody at the temple, verse 41 to 44, a poverty-stricken poor widow who gets it and represents completely how we should live in light of this Messiah. So we'll consider those two examples in turn. So firstly, not hypocritically self-seeking. So thus, verses 38 to 40. Well, apparently there's a new word that's crept into the English language over the last few years, and that word is virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. Anyone heard of this word? Cropped up? Apparently it's now in the um, Oxford English Dictionary as of last year. Virtue signaling. It was um, apparently coined by journalist James Bartholomew in 2015. And in the dictionary, it's defined as the action or practice of publicly expressing opinion or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character, to enhance one's standing within a social group, often without a practical application of the opinion held. So I googled this word, virtue signaling, and a number of papers have written articles on this word. And often an example they give of, give of it is someone who claims very loudly at a dinner party how much they hate four by fours, indicating their deep care for the environment. Or uh, one paper gives the example of someone um, who's always very quick to take part on social media um, in whatever viral charity craze is going on, if that's um, the ice bucket challenge a few years back, and I think last year it was the 20 press-ups over 20 days um, challenge. But actually that person who doesn't actually give any money to charity, doesn't give any money to the charity they're representing. So virtue signaling is making sure you look virtuous in public, um, but behind closed doors, um, not too bothered. So the phrase in modern days often used to kind of just point the finger at someone um, you think is being a bit showy about themselves. Virtue signaling. And the phrase might be new to the dictionary, but as we see, the sentiment is as old as time. So verse 38, have a look at it. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So they walk the walk, they appear virtuous to get respect and honor. But behind closed doors, it's a different story. They, quote, devour widows' houses. That is the most vulnerable they use. Do you notice what Jesus says? It's all about what they like. So they like to walk around in flowing robes. Um, There's nothing particularly against dressing gowns per se, but um, it's more like religious Cub Scout badges. It's a way of kind of publicly demonstrating um, one's uh, religious deeds. They like to show that, and they like to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. So that's the kind of the public space, the public forum. And they like to be known as an an upright member of the community and greeted as such. Uh, Where they like to sit, and they like to have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the banquets. And those are kind of places of official public reputation and reckoning. Now, of course, there's not anything wrong with uh, receiving encouragement. There's nothing wrong with being thanked or even honor. There's nothing wrong with those things. But 
seeking those things and being motivated by those things, oh, that desire is so dangerous. That desire can shipwreck you. To the extent that these teachers of the law, they end up, verse 40, for a show, making lengthy prayers. Oh, do we see the point of supposedly deepest intimacy between uh, the believer and God? It becomes a sham. And they, quote, devour widows' houses. It's hard to pin down exactly what um, that means here, but widows and orphans in the Bible is like a shorthand for those who are most vulnerable, um, the most vulnerable who need protecting. And the widow um, Jesus uses as an example in these next verses, actually in the whole world, she has only two pennies. She's in poverty, two pennies. So um, one commentator says it's the equivalent of saying you eat someone out of house and home, but literally doing it. So eating someone out of house and home, we normally use that phrase, like my granny does when I go to visit and I eat all the Jaffa cakes. She's like, oh, Simon, he always eats me out of house and home, but I don't literally. Um, but no, this is someone who only has two 1p coins in the world. They only have enough money for just about the next meal, and you eat it all. They're devouring widows' houses. And why do they do that? Why do these guys who are so well-known for their good deeds do it? Well, I wonder if it's because no one can see them. It's out of the way, it's not in the temple, it's private. And to be honest, their reputation might just be quite a lot stronger than these widows. So would anyone believe a bad word against them? They can get away with it. And the deeper reason of why they're like this, why they seek this honor for themselves and want to show it and display it, the deep reason is that because their view of Jesus is too small, and so they want honor for themselves, it's a bit like that uh, difference between um, the Oscar-winning speech, you know, the kind of cliche at the Oscars where someone stands up and spends a whole time, I'd like to thank my, uh, my coach and my acting coach over all those years who supported me, and it's 10 minutes of thanking other people. Um, comparing that and comparing the kind of egotistical sportsman, um, a bit like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, the Man United striker, who on Instagram regularly posts things like, um, I am the king of Manchester, and I came, I saw, I conquered and a uh, picture of himself with all, you know, doing his muscles out, which looks strikingly similar to King Kong. Um, you know, that kind of uh, uh, self-promoting thing. But the reason is his view of his trainer and his agent isn't particularly high, so he's happy to get the honor for himself. So that's what they've got wrong, that Jesus is, well, relatively small, and so, well, shouldn't I get the honor? And Jesus says, watch out for them. Watch out for these people. Don't follow them. And watch out for them actually in your own heart. Because obviously they can seem like this kind of grotesque caricature of like a, a Disney baddie or something. But the, the uncomfortable reality is actually they're not far from my own heart. So part of me does like honor for myself in my religion. Now, we usually start with kind of good intentions, pure intentions even. Um, you know, maybe at the end of church, someone um, asks us to help away with moving some of the chairs or stacking up some of the Bibles, something like that. And we're um, happy to get stuck in, uh, roll up our sleeves, and we're kind of thankful to God, just had a great time, and um, not really overthinking it, just doing the right thing for the right reason. But then someone comes along and um, thanks us for the smile for being so, well, such a good example of, encouraging example of um, joyful service in the Christian life. And um, well, it feels encouraging. Actually, we hadn't expected that at all. We wouldn't have particularly minded if no one had noticed at all, but the fact that it's encouraged someone, that's just, actually, that's made my day even better. That's, that's encouraging. That's fine to be encouraged by that. So it starts with good intentions, intentions that get noticed, 
and that's encouraging for someone. And that's okay. That's good. But you see, it's such a dangerously subtle shift in my heart when being noticed becomes something I, I like, I want, I need. Being noticed becomes something I want to show. So I start doing the equivalent of um, at work, slightly shifting my chair at work so my boss can see quite how late I'm working or um, you know, sending that email very late at night so that people know um, how hard I'm working. So in church life, I can start to serve where I'm noticed. I do it subtly, but I start wanting to serve where I can be seen doing it. And there are ways of working out if we're doing this. Perhaps cast your mind back if, um, to the last um, area of Christian service or ministry you're a part of and ask, would I do this act of um, service if I knew that no one apart from me and God would ever know about it? Or perhaps in life where those um, areas crop up, where no one else knows about it and it isn't secret, is that the area of my Christian life where I cut corners on the most? Or perhaps I've been um, giving myself very sacrificially in a few areas. And we know that for the right reasons we um, made that sacrifice or signed up for that thing which is demanding ourselves. We were thankful to God. We're happy to do it. But part of me starts to want people to appreciate quite what I've sacrificed. And part of me would quite like people to realize what I could have done, how I could have spent that time, that money. And so I don't um, want people to realize I've done it in a showy, ostentatious way, but in a kind of Christian sort of way, I can start to drop hints that that well-tuned ear can pick up on. And my prayers, my prayer life, it can slowly shift from I'm praying to my Heavenly Father to when I'm praying at a home group or, or something like that, I can want people to see quite how um, biblically orthodox I've become. Um, or when I'm leading people in prayer, I kind of seek the, the mmm factor when people pray along. Until I kind of realize, actually, my prayer life isn't so much vertical. Actually, slightly just become horizontal. I don't pray on my, my, on my own at all anymore. And obviously part of this teach of the law kind of behavior is driven by the very strong natural human impulse to want to belong. You see that they want to be part of the group and be in there. And lots of areas of lives we can notice kind of inner circles and um, in crowds that we'd love to be in and part of. And so in any church we can, we can come along and kind of feel a perceived inner crowd. Kind of regardless of whether or not actually we know in the cold light of day one exists, we can kind of perceive an inner crowd and so who is the person who, when, I'm, when I am serving in secret, who would I love to just walk into the room and, and catch me? Who are the people that, when they're around me at church, I make sure I'm on, on good form, be like at work, kind of straightening your back and typing diligently all of a sudden? Who are those people who I long to honor me? You see, this temptation is very subtle, isn't it? I see it very subtly inside me. It lurks within all of us. When doing that right thing for the right reason, well, actually, that... I. Uh, desire to virtue signal in church is creeping up. It's popping its head up. It wants honor for itself. And Jesus says, watch out for that. Watch out for that. Jesus sees through that kind of hypocrisy. And we see there's lots of areas in life where we kind of can just um, blag our way through. Um, but Jesus sees right through where we try to blag. He sees through false worship. Don't be deceived. Give yourself wholeheartedly to him.
And it can be perilously tempting to be hypocrites in private, especially in London. I can have a, a good reputation here at church. You can think very well of me. But how do I treat that vulnerable person, that very difficult person who none of you know about? London is a very big city, and so that temptation to live a, a double life can be very tempting. So watch out for that. Watch out for that. Repent of that. And actually, that can be what happens when our view of Jesus becomes too small, and so our religion becomes too shallow. So that's Jesus' negative example. Don't be like them. Watch out for them. But instead, be like this widow who wholeheartedly self-gives. So verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the temple treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I think it's quite interesting in Mark's Gospel where um, the camera slows right down. So Mark's Gospel generally is very quick pace. It's always immediately Jesus did this, immediately, the next day, the next day. Um, if, you like, if it was a film, it's like um, an, action scene, an action film where the camera moves along very quick. But here it slows right down, and Jesus just sits down, just sits down here, and he, he watches. Jesus people watching, actually, at the temple. And what he sees, he sees lots of people who are doing their giving, uh, making their offerings. So in the um, temple, uh, there were lots of um, giving holes where you give your um, free will offerings. Um, I think shaped a bit like those vivuzelas the angels are holding, um, those trumpet-like uh, shaped things. And they'd be kind of down here and people could walk along and, and throw your money in and it would kind of make a bit of a clunk noise, a bit like those um, supermarket uh, swirly things they used to have um, to give to charity. Um, but you can imagine the, um, the atmosphere, it's festival time, people are really enjoying it. Um, you can imagine someone coming on and throwing in good two, you know, really solid gold coins, and they make a really satisfying clunk, clunk. Everyone's, yeah. And, uh, and then someone else comes along, throws in even more, and it makes this really satisfying big noise as it all tumbles in. Someone comes along with their kind of um, giant-sized charity check, and everyone's, woo, that's brilliant. They're loving it. Except in the film, it'd be like, sorry, Jesus would say, sorry, rewind the tape. You rewind it back, and then to just in the corner of the screen, slightly out of focus, there's this poor widow with a, with a black shawl over her head, and she just, um, in the far giving one, just puts in two tiny little coins, which are like one P pieces, and she just puts them in. She's utterly unnoticeable to anyone, except to Jesus. When he people watches, that's what he notices. And so he, Jesus calls his disciples to him. He says, come over here. You've got to learn a lesson from this woman. So verse 43, he says to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. See the stress of what Jesus is saying? It's giving everything. It's all out of poverty. This is wholeheartedness. Her gift represents total commitment to God. And why does she do this? Well, in context, is that she gets who God is. She gets that the Lord is worth this loving with all yourself, with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. She gets that. And she sees that he's worth it. 
So this is an encouragement to us. It's an encouragement about what Jesus values and what Jesus notices. See, he values the heart. So 1 Samuel 16 says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it's a real encouragement to us. Those of us who feel um, we have really small contributions financially on the grand scale of things, you know, compared to other incomes, you can kind of think, gosh, what difference do I really make with my giving, my financial giving? Um, you know, I'm aware it's a, a healthy thing to do, um, but really what's the difference? Well, the wonderful thing is that Jesus has a different currency converter to us. He looks at the heart. That's what he notices, how much the heart longs to give to him. And those of us who are feeling the pinch of um, being sacrificially generous, those of us who are aware, perhaps at this stage of our lives, um, others are enjoying luxuries that by all rights could be ours, but we've given up on those for Jesus. Those of us who are feeling the pinch of um, sacrificial generosity, Maybe nobody here in this room knows about that. But Jesus does. And he's smiling. Jesus sees the heart. And for those of us who feel that, well, compared to other people's uh, talents and gifts, I've got hardly anything. Uh, My energy levels are so low. My time I can give compared to others is nothing. I'm not really a teacher of the Bible. I can't play a music instrument. I'm... You know, all I do is kind of chip in in this tiny little way, which probably anyone here could do. Well, be encouraged. Jesus has a different currency converter. He sees the heart. And he's delighted with that heart, who wholeheartedly gives to him. He's delighted. It's an encouragement to us. And also this woman, she's an example. So because of who Jesus is, let's give ourselves wholeheartedly to him. That's what the disciples need to understand. So the example Jesus used here is money. Uh, Obviously, it includes every area of our lives. J.C. Ryle, who's a 19th century bishop, was preaching on these verses, and he prayed and said, Let us pray to God to open men's eyes and awake men's hearts and stir up a spirit of liberality. Above all else, let each do our own duty and give liberally and gladly to every Christian object while we can. There will be no giving when we are dead. Let's give as those who remember that the eyes of Christ are upon us. He still sees exactly what each gives, and he knows exactly how much is left behind. Above all, let us give as the disciples of a crucified Savior who gave himself freely for us, body and soul, on the cross. Freely we have received. Let us freely give. as we close, when we see how, how very wonderful our Messiah is, when our view of him afresh is big enough, oh, we see of how much love he is worth, how much wholehearted giving he is worth. And so we see what he values, what life's appropriate. It's, um, so church, we need to repent of how we seek honor for ourselves and instead look to him this morning, look to him and let's give ourselves wholeheartedly to him because he's worth it. Should we close in prayer? Father, how we praise you for our Messiah. Father, for our ruler, our judge, our saviour, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, the Messiah. 
Father, please, we do pray we would repent of where we seek honour for ourselves and instead we look at Jesus and trust in him. And as we look at him, we may be those who happily and joyfully give everything, knowing that he's given everything to us. Father, please fill our hearts today with a fresh how wonderful you are. For your glory we pray. Amen.